Welcome to Behind the Standards with United Rentals. This is the podcast where we discuss construction safety, specifically trench excavation and confined space safety, but also other topics that deal with general job site safety as well. I am Rick Plosinski, Customer Training Specialist, and with me are two trainers from California, Jason Jamison and Eric Partenheimer. So our conversation will hopefully inform, educate, and possibly even be a little bit entertaining so we can help you avoid injuries and fatalities out on a job site. Today, we will be discussing the more common myths around excavation safety. And Jason, we're going to kick this first one off with you. So Jason, there's a commonly held misconception that an employer can bench in any type of soil as long as there are cohesive properties within that soil. Um, a lot of times what happens is we see contractors that just fail to do soil analysis on their job sites. They, they feel like they've had years of experience. They understand soil. And basically what happens is they just start putting in the work and, and not understanding the, the thought process behind it. And the problem with the reason why we can't bench in type C soil is because we have no engineering documentation to support them. So what happens is because of the lack of doing a soil analysis, you know, most of the time when they do bench, come to find out they have something better than what would be considered a, a type C soil. And a lot of it comes from those myths of we can just go ahead and bench, but unless we have uh, written documentation, you know, something that is going to pro provide us some some proof of why we can do something, that that's the biggest outcome of why we cannot bench in, in C type soil. We have no engineering back backing behind that. Jason, yeah, I, what we see a lot also is people that say, "Well, we're just going to call it all C and take the guesswork out. We don't want to have to mess with it." Not understanding a couple of different types of, of C type soil, one engineered, one that is uh, is not, and one that's on tabulated data that you're referring to as far as documentation of when we can do things or when we can't do things. Yeah, the stability of the soil is is the biggest thing, and and this is one of the things that we see is people will just say, well, we're just going to call it C soil, yet they still bench, and the soil may be a nice B and cohesive soil that is allowed to have benching, but if they've just gone through and defaulted to C. That's where they're going to get themselves into trouble because you, what you're just saying is there is no backing for that. There is no documentation that allows that to be happening. So I think that, you know, it, you've got to look at the soil type. And if, if you understand C soil, you understand that it really is not going to stand up. And if it does stand up long enough to put a protective system in, there's your C60. If it doesn't, there's your C80. But nowhere does it say that you can actually just bench it and leave it that way throughout the day. Yeah, because the OSHA standard specifically says that you can only bench in A or B cohesive type of soils. You cannot bench in C soil. I mean, that comes directly out of Appendix B of the OSHA excavation standard. So right there, unless you have some other engineering that says that it is acceptable for you to do those benches in that type of soil, then it's not allowed period, end of discussion. And so you have to move on and use some other type of protective system. Next one, all protective systems used in trenches greater than 20 feet in depth require custom engineering. That's not necessarily the case. If you are working in a trench that is greater than 20 feet, you cannot have a slope or a bench unless you have some documentation 
to allow for that type of protective system to be used. It does not necessarily require custom engineering, but if you are if you are using a protective system, specifically something that was manufactured by Speedshore or whether it was manufactured by GME or any of these type of protective system companies, as long as their tabulated data shows that it is acceptable, that is the special engineering that is actually required. And just to jump in on this one too, and I, and I, where this one stems from, and this is this has been one. It, it's it's gotten better over the years, but it's still we still see it out there. It, the book itself, the standard itself, says anything deeper than twenty foot has to be engineered. That's the basis for people thinking at twenty foot it has to be engineered. If we dive a little deeper, we understand that the sloping and magic numbers that OSHA gives us are good for up to twenty feet. Over twenty, just like you said, got to have engineering. Now, shielding and shoring up to 20 and even over 20, if I've got my tabulated data and we are using it in, you know, what the data says that we're supposed to be using it as, we're fine to go deeper. I mean, we've got shields that'll go 40 feet deep, if not deeper um, on there. And because they're stamped off with a registered professional engineer stamp, there is your engineering. So it's that, that 20 foot comes in from the book saying anything over 20. And I think some people have been doing this for a long period of time that was drilled into them, that anything over 20. But when you do look at the data and drill a little deeper, that's where that exception comes into play. What I find interesting, it kind of leads into our next one, which says sloping and benching with shields in excavation greater than 20 feet is acceptable so long as the sloper bench is at a depth less than 20 feet. That's not allowed. If you have a trench or an excavation that is greater than 20 feet, sloping or benching is not allowed unless you have an RPE signing off on your plan. Just because the slope or the bench might be at a depth less than 20 feet, that's regardless of the of the OSHA standard. That's actually taking the standard a little bit too far. Yeah, and I think a lot of times where the misconception is because how many times do you we get a customer that maybe orders a shield, but doesn't really give us the full information as far as total depth. And that's what they have to realize is you always have to look at total depth. So yes, you're sloping and benching is only, you know, 19 feet, but you have to throw in the, the factor of, okay, well, now we went straight vertical for five feet. Now you're looking at a, a 24 foot trench because you have to look at that total depth. Yeah. I, it, and that's, that's, this is definitely one that people look at and they think, well, okay, I'm 21 feet. I'll just pull the top two feet off and I'm below 20. Doesn't work that way. You're going to slope that out, put it 18 inches down from the top and slope that out. That's still factored into that full depth of the trench. So yeah, 20, you're, you're still at 21 feet, no matter what you want to try and talk yourself out of. <laughs> and what I've also found interesting too, is that in reading up a little bit on this, if your spoil pile is less than two feet away, you have to take the height of that spoil pile as the overall height and depth of the trench. And absolutely. And that kind of <laughs> leads us into another subject is the height and the, and the distance of the spoil pile being back. Most people, when you say how, you know, how far away does your spoils need to be, everybody understands two feet. But then when we start talking about the height of that spoil pile, that's where you get a lot of different answers anytime you ask. And when you start looking at, you know, can it be, doesn't matter if it's more than two feet, you know, as long as it's two feet back, there really isn't a height requirement. And that's not 100% true. We're looking at, you know, protection from loose rock and soil. 
if the, if the spoil pile is tall enough, even though it's two feet back, if something can roll into the trench, we have to provide some sort of a barrier or something there. The other and probably more important factor on that is that height of that spoil pile, the weight of that spoil pile. And when you look at tabulated data, speed shores, for instance, on their hydraulic shore says their tables and charts are good for basically up to a three foot tall spoil pile. Now, if I start increasing that, do what do I need to do with my shoring? Do I need to start doubling up on my shoring rather than be eight foot apart, you know, on center at 10 foot of depth in a B-stall? Maybe I got to back that to six or four. Or if six is my maximum distance, facing distance, and a six foot, you know, or a 10 foot deep trench in C60 soil, I might have to back that to four foot to compensate for that additional weight. Ideally, three foot tall, no more than that, two feet away from the edge, that's going to keep you in compliance. Jason, there's another myth out there that's rather common, and it talks about fall protection and the fact that fall protection is always required around a trench or an excavation, regardless of its depth. You get things all over the board on this one, actually. Um, and a lot of it stems from contractors going above and beyond where they're putting in, you know, guardrails regardless. And if you look at the standard, it's actually broken up into two parts because of a letter of interpretation. The first one is saying that if we're going to have personnel that are allowed to go from one side of a trench to the other and the employer is going to allow it or they're going to do it without going around, we need to provide them a walkway. And then it breaks it down into the standard that says, once that trench gets into six feet of depth or greater, and it's wider than 30 inches, now you need to throw in guardrails and kick panels. Then it breaks into that LOI as far as breaking it down to providing barricades and fences. And, and if you fully read through the whole standard on it, it says that it's when it's readily not, the edge of the excavation is not readily seen because of plant growth or uh, other visual barriers. So there's a lot of things in that standard that kind of get interweaved into each other that throws up a lot of misconceptions and then just general practice going above and beyond. Yeah, I also with that too, and like you said, when people read through there, they'll look at it and it'll say, you know, anything six feet or deep more in depth. You've got to have fencing or barricades or something that keeps people from coming in. And a lot of places have just put the period there and said, okay, well, this is what we're going to require. Other job sites have actually looked through it. And, and you, you, when you read through, it says if there is plant growth or other visual barrier, that's going to keep, you know, me being able to see the edge of it. And the letter of interpretation that you alluded to says it would actually make in construction our work infeasible in order to have barriers on every one of them. So it's not a requirement. You know, it, it, depending upon where we're at, we're going to find different job sites and different generals that are going to say, no, 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 we're, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have it six foot or more. I think the other one that comes into play, too, would be like bore pits and things like that. Wells, pits and shafts, those fall under a different set of rules. And that's uh, that's kind of helped this myth also that, well, okay, if I've got this and what defines that, well, then now you're almost going back to the basics of the standard and defining what's an excavation and a trench excavation versus wells, pits, and shafts, and things like that. So, yeah, I, it's, you know, they, I, it really just depends on the group and who you're dealing with. Yeah, and that's the thing that I talk about all the time, too, is that if you are going to go above and beyond the standard and provide fall protection in and around trenches and excavations, let's make sure we're doing it right. We've seen too many things out on a job site where people say, oh, well, it's not really required, so it doesn't really matter how we actually set up a fall protection plan. 
if you are going to set up a fall protection plan, it has to meet the requirements for fall protection, regardless of whether it's actually required by the standard to be in this particular setting. And like I teach in most of my classes, you know, a lot of the standard, there's a lot of gray area. And there's a lot of in the weeds of, well, what do they actually mean here? And we've talked about it before, you know, using the, the consultation lines. If, if you ever are in doubt of under, truly understanding something, you're doing yourself a disjustice if you don't call into that to get good clarification on those things. And this is one. This is this is one that, that does get, because I think we've got, we're kind of in the middle of the peak, I think, of this, because you're going to have generals now that are requiring that fall protection. So guys work there and they, you know, if they're brand new. They come in just thinking that's how it always is. Then they go to other job sites and there is no fall protection. And it's like, wait a minute, what, what is the actual rule? So, yeah, I, I think we're kind of at that point now where if people start going, leaning more towards having fencing or some sort of fall protection on there, you know, as a general rule that may get adopted as an industry standard. But, yeah, it's it's. As it's written, fall protection is always required regardless of depth. The the answer is no. Eric, there's another myth that suggests that trench or excavation protection is never required at depths less than five feet. Yeah, Uh, not true. You know, if it's less than five foot, say you're four or six, you could get fined just like if you were seven feet if you didn't have a protective system, if it's warranted. So where the standard tells you, you have two exceptions to the rule of five feet or deep grade. All trenches or excavations have to be protected. And there's two exceptions. One is if it's entirely in stable rock. The other one is if it's less than five foot, an examination of the ground by the competent person provides no indication of potential cave-in or hazardous uh, you know, atmosphere for somebody to go into. And when I say atmosphere, I mean the dirt, not so much the actual atmosphere, although that would fall into play also. Uh, but yeah, there, there, uh, it, it, it is, you know, there, it could be just as required less than five as it would be over five. Yeah, you have to prove that you don't need a protective system at depths less than five feet. And the way to prove that you don't need that protective system is to do that job site inspection. And so that kind of leads to the next one, too, when we're talking about job site inspections, is that. Some people think that classifying all of their soils as a C80 would eliminate the need for that job site inspection. And really doesn't. Uh, that job site inspection still needs to be done. We're looking for indications of potential cave-ins, hazardous atmospheres, things along that. Do I have changing conditions? What's going on around the job site? Not so much just the trench that's been dug out, but what's going on around that? Are there additional surcharge loads? Are there other factors that might be in play? So just because I'm going to default to a C-type soil, and in most cases, they should be looking at C80 because they've not classified soil by just calling it C, there still absolutely is a need for that job site inspection. And as Jason always says, OSHA is a show-me organization. Make sure you document that on a daily inspection sheet, because if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. Jason, let's go back to you. You have some previous history with some of this. Extension ladders can be used disassembled. In other words, we're going to take two halves of an extension ladder and we are going to use them separately to get in and out of a trench or an excavation. Yeah, that one's pretty cut and dry. Unfortunately, you know, you see it happen a lot, but um, because, you know, they only have one ladder on the truck, but they need to put in, you know, access and egress. So they're like, well, we'll just split this thing in half. Well, the problem is, is now we've just 
taken a piece of equipment that was designed a certain way to work a certain way. And now we've pretty much disassembled the ladder and now it's not built for the way it was designed. So, you know, the bottom line is if, if it's an extension ladder, then it needs to be used as an extension. ladder. If it's one single straight ladder, then it's a single straight ladder. So it's all about using it, what it was intended for. Yeah. And, and, and then that, I'll just piggybacking on that, you know, you pull it apart. Well, all the, all the data that goes with that, the weight weightings and all the things that go with it were based off of two pieces together not a single piece unless you've got documentation that says well yes this ladder you can take apart now here are your weight ratings which you're not going to find that on ladders typically so it's yeah it's that's that's a big next one any high visibility vest will suffice for public vehicular traffic safety if you take a look at the 2009 which is the latest and greatest standard on the manual of uniform traffic control devices which basically kind of regulates and gives safety protocols to the traffic control tree. If you take a look at that, what it does say is that you must have a minimum of a class two reflective garment for daytime work, but it strongly recommends a class three retro reflective garment for nighttime work. So not just any high visibility vest will suffice. And it also goes on to say, talking about the different colors that you might want to use, uh, the different type of reflective tape. Again, we talked about reflective versus retro reflective. And retro reflective tape, uh, or excuse me, retro reflective material, basically what it does is it accepts the beam of light and it bounces it back directly to its source. If you actually ever see this stuff out in the field being used, especially at night, what you'll see is that it looks like this floating kind of glowing orb, if you will, you know, just above the, the surface and you go, whoa, what, what is that? That is retro reflective material. And it really does heighten the, the visibility of the person who is actually wearing that really, really well. Also, you have to think about, um, as it says in the standards, you have to check with the local agencies too. Because in the state of California, a traffic control flagger needs to have a anti-type three vest on regardless day or night operations. So there's, there's local factors in there too. There's also factors regarding color of hard hats, whether you need to use safety glasses, whether you need to have steel toe boots on or safety boots on any of those kinds of things. So, and the thing is, is it doesn't just change from state to state. It also varies from possibly even from city to city or even county to county. So if you're going to stay safe, let's stay compliant and then everybody wins in the end, right? So the workers get to go home at the end of every day and the employers get to avoid a bunch of fines and penalties. So at the end of the day, everybody wins. Last one, Jason, you have a lot of history with this one as well. So the local fire department will always be able to help in the event of a collapse. That's definitely a myth. Uh, unfortunately, um, and, you know, we get the blind sight of, you know, thinking that all fire departments are trained in the same. And, and the reality of it is, is they're not. You know, you have paid uh, fire departments, you have paid call fire departments, you have volunteer fire departments, and they're all funded differently. Even, you know, a paid company uh, or fire department doesn't necessarily train every single personnel the same. So you may have a station that's close by that isn't trained on how to do, you know, trench collapse 
or swift water or confined space. And so what happens is it delays the process of, you know, these, these departments show up and they can't help us, unfortunately, because they are not trained, qualified personnel and they're not going to put themselves into harm's way because it's not their emergency. It's our emergency. So it, it's, it's very important to do our due diligence to kind of put together, you know, safety plans, rescue plans, and, and really understand that if things go south or go awry, what are we going to do? Who are we going to rely on? Yeah, I, I think on, on that too, yes. Yeah, it's, it, it, this is definitely a big myth that people don't understand. There's not a mandate by the fire marshal to be trained on confined space rescue or trench rescue or swift water, whatever it is. It really just relies on the funding. And that's why we'll find more in urban areas. You'll find a department that maybe is trained, but then what people think is, is well, if this department's trained, it's at every station. And that's not true either. It's usually housed at a single location. So we're working on the outskirts of town. I got to factor in now that time frame for them to get to me, uh, the group that's trained. Now the closest station may roll up, but all they're going to do is prep. They're going to get things ready for the guys who are actually going in. And that time frame, and this is something, too, I really stress, and I know you do, too, in the classes, is you're looking at anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour per foot of depth to get somebody out. So when we start talking depths of five, six, seven feet to most of us in the trade, it doesn't sound super deep. That's not you know as deep as we've seen before. But when you start thinking three to five to six hours to get somebody out, the damage that can be done in that time frame with X amount, thousands of pounds on top of them is tremendous. And so, you know, just relying on that local department, I think when we talk to safety people, at least I know when I do in classes, they actually are proactive and will call. They've got a job in this particular city. They'll make that call. That is not a requirement anywhere in the book. I think it's a great best practice to at least have that number. But the one thing I want to caution everybody and remember too is don't think because you were there a year ago that they may still have it. That that department, that that particular outfit may have had to be, you know, defunded or they just didn't have the personnel or they couldn't hire people with those certs, whatever it is. So anytime you're going to be there, it, to me, it's like confined space with a permit required entry. Make the call ahead of time just so you've got that number there. Well, two things that one you brought up, too, is um, maybe that that station is certified, but they have overtime personnel and that overtime personnel is not trained. So just because that station may be a technical rescue station doesn't mean all the personnel are, are going to be, you know, trained. And then also to piggyback on that is when we have the fire department coming out to these emergencies, you have to understand we started out with a trench that was good to go. You know, we, we developed this, you know, we had good clean sides, but now they're coming into a compromised system that, you know, they have already trench collapsed. So they're not getting the same situation as when we started the job. Yeah, I, I, you know, honestly, with this one to me and the way I, I do it, I think you guys do it the same way, too, is I just kind of summarize this as saying, look, take care of yourself. The, this is really what it comes down. If you do things correctly, if, it, you know, I like it, if you've got a gas monitor with a confined space and you use it each and every time, you're going to eliminate a boatload of problems. If you use the proper protective system you know, five foot or deeper, and if less than five and it's needed, you're going to take care of yourself and not have to worry about this. It's when corners get cut and people think just making a phone call, it, you know, it's going to it's going to take care of their issues. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. So take care of yourselves. And think about the equipment that is needed for this. 
and whether each, and it's not the cheapest equipment. I mean, let's be honest, it, it does cost a little bit of money and some of the smaller fire departments might not be able to have the resources available to procure that equipment and then therefore train their employees on the use of that equipment. There's a whole lot of different things there. Yeah. And just, you know, and this is coming back, pulling the curtain back a little bit too also um, is the equipment that's used. Um, some will use the, you know, the uh, hydraulic shores that we use in industry. Some will use what's called paratex or air shores. And as Jason can tell you, being from that world, everything, if you attach the word fire department to it, it seems like the monetary value goes way up. The other one is, is that a lot of departments still use wood. Two by fours, four by fours, and plywood. They have tabulated data for that. They'll have a measure team, they have a cut team, and they start to install. Hence, your 30 minutes to an hour per foot of depth to get somebody out. Yeah, no, you you hit it. You hit it around the nail. I was going to add there too is, is some of those uh, stations are, are using, you know, wood, actual wood beams. And like you said, you know, cut teams. And it's a long, long, lengthy process. And honestly, we could talk hours on, on just rescue plans. Yeah. So, yeah, this would this could definitely be a topic in and of itself. And I mean, we all just sat through a presentation from a person who was trapped in a trench. He was six and a half feet down that he was able to get out in 10 minutes. That was an extremely fortunate and rare occurrence that they were actually able to get him out, that he's actually alive today to live and tell that tale. And so, yeah, this definitely could be a whole separate topic in and of itself if we just talked about uh, rescues, not only from a trench and excavation standpoint, but also from a confined space standpoint, from a whole bunch of different areas. This could really be a good conversation to have probably one day very soon. So this has been Behind the Standards with United Rentals. If you have any questions about this topic or have any suggestions about other topics that you may want to be discussed, feel free to send an email to urtspodcast at ur.com. On behalf of Jason, Eric, and myself, thanks for listening. Have a great day and stay safe.